is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Merck, the drug company, may finally have the pill we've been hoping for. It's the new antiviral pill, and it says it cuts hospitalizations and deaths in COVID patients in half. They're going to ask the health officials in the U.S. and around the world to authorize its use. How exciting is this? It sounds pretty exciting. We'll talk about it. California, the first state to require all school students to be vaccinated. People will now have new health care consumer protections to take the surprise out of medical bills. And a lot of companies have pivoted and thrived during the pandemic. We'll hear from a business owner who switched things up in order to survive. But we start with Merck's new pill. Dr. David Bulware, scientist at the University of Minnesota Medical School, has been working on his own clinical trials of potential COVID treatments. Brian Ping and I asked him how this thing works. So the molnipravir is, is this new medicine that was reported out uh, today, and they've been working on it for quite some time. Uh, but it's basically, it's a direct antiviral. And so it works by sort of mimicking the, the normal nu- nucleic acids that get uh, taken up and incorporated into RNA, uh, such that it sort of blocks the, the replication of the virus. And that's its antiviral effect. When in the timeline is this supposed to be taken? If I'm already in the hospital, this is not for me. But if I'm, what, feeling symptoms, I go to the doctor, I test positive, that's when to start giving it? Correct. So this was this trial was done when people had symptoms for less than five days. Uh, and so it's really early, you know, outpatient treatment. Uh, they did do a prior trial uh, in, the, in the development when they looked at hospitalized patients. And it really didn't do anything uh, for hospitalized patients. And so they did not pursue... Uh, doing further studies in that population. So it's really early treatment. Is this going to be in the league of like a Theraflu, something I can easily get over the counter and not for a whole lot of money? Or is this more like some of these you know, advanced treatments uh, that uh, people have been getting in the hospital uh, recently? Um, I would say it's it's not quite over the counter sort of status, certainly. Um, there's some, you know, I think that the major concerns about it have been around safety. And so with more and more data, that that's... Um, that, you know, that, that that's reassuring, uh, but they, they didn't release the data today on safety. And particularly the concern would be pregnant women or, or, or things like that um, of uh, potential problems. And so uh, it's definitely not going to be over the counter, but it, it is um, a relatively five-day course is relatively, uh, appears to be fairly safe uh, in, um, in the clinical trials. What is the process now? Because they've seen the evidence in this independent safety panel, apparently saw the evidence of such effectiveness that they're actually what? They're kind of stopping the trial early and trying to get at the EUA. And is that that's not rushing for rushing's sake. It's just putting a rush on it because because those results, they are so promising. Yeah, the, the trial enrolled, I think it was 775 people. Originally, it was, uh, was going to be over uh, 1,200 people. Uh, and so in a clinical trial, you sort of do interim analyses. And, and at time of the, this last interim analysis, what they found were in the placebo group, uh, about 14% of people were hospitalized versus it was 7.3% in the, the treated group. And so it was about a 50% reduction. And so that was sort of statistically significant and sort of beyond, you know, sort of what you would, you know, beyond just random chance. And so it was sort of viewed as unethical to continue the trial. And so they stopped the trial. So the next steps are basically they need they do still have you know patients that are following up in the trial for their 28 day outcome they need to collate that data send it off to FDA FDA has to review that data uh, and um, and then sort of make their pronouncement and uh, you know thoughts on the EUA and who best would apply for um, and be applicable for 
so there's there's several steps. And so I would guess that process is going to be, you know, that may be two months into the future by the time, you know, this is something that might even be available. With vaccine resistance still so high, are you worried that perhaps with the news of this uh, this breakthrough with uh, being able to treat it well, people who are holding out are saying, yeah, I can hold out a little longer. If I get it, I can just take this pill. Well, th- this pill isn't available today. Um, you know, there's monoclonal antibodies is another treatment. You know, all of these have, you know, the medications have side effects and, and certainly getting COVID in the first place, you're going to have much more side effects uh, than you ever would with the vaccine. Uh, and so, you know, vaccination still is, is the way forward for prevention. Um, the U.S. government, and there's going to be a limited supply of this. And so the U.S. government did a, a purchase order uh, with Merck. Uh, they, they signed back in June. I think it was like 1.7 million doses. Uh, and so that Merck was going to produce for like $1 billion, $1.2 billion. Um, and so even with those, you know, 1.7 million doses, based on just the number of COVID cases that we have, you know, that supply rapidly could be exhausted. Dr. David Bulware, infectious disease scientist, University of Minnesota Medical School. Doctor, thanks. All students in California will soon have to be vaccinated against COVID once the FDA gives full approval. All the kids 12 and older will need to get a shot. Same for the younger ones, if and when they get approved. First state in the country to mandate COVID vaccinations for kids. Leah Russin, executive director of the Parent Advocacy Group of Vaccinates California. Brian and I asked her if she was disappointed this didn't happen sooner. No, I'm not at all disappointed it didn't come down sooner. I mean, from my perspective, and I think um, from most public health uh, people's perspective, you don't want to have to get to a mandate. You hope that people will recognize the value and the safety of a vaccine and they will uh, use it in in. Um, quite literally, death-defying numbers, right? <laughs> um, and so you won't need a mandate. But here, um, we have just enough people who are refusing or slow to vaccinate. Um, so we need a mandate to put us over the top because COVID itself is such a highly contagious disease. So it makes sense that first you you wait, you see uh, what the uptake rates are, what you can do with talking to people, convincing people, um, listening to people's concerns, um, encouraging them to talk to their pediatricians, their doctors, and then um, you you get you know as many people as you can vaccinated on their own, and then you start imposing mandates that are conditions of participation in society. So even this mandate, when it finally comes into effect in full, will only be for in-person class, right? So um, people who don't want to get vaccinated will still be able to just opt into um, at-home or distance learning. I'm wondering when we get to that point and, and the timing, as you kind of mentioned, it's, it's going to be phased in. So it's whenever the full authorization happens and then the next term. So there is a period for people to, to ramp up. And, and some districts, as you know, are already doing this ahead of of this announcement. But for, for maybe there's groups of parents who are, who are vaccine wary. Um, and I know you, you've been trying to, to educate for years because your group, but if they're not getting their vaccines and so their kids not getting their vaccine, and then your only option really is independent study because this is public or private. So there's no school that you're going to in person. Does that child eventually come to mom and dad and say, um, I don't understand why I could go to school before, but now I can't and all my friends are going. So, you know, we've heard anecdotal stories about things like that, um, you know, back in um, a couple of years ago when New York imposed its vaccine mandate for things like the measles vaccine. And when California imposed its um, or got rid of its personal belief exemption back in 2016 or 2015. Um, and um, 
that then went into effect in 2016. So we heard some stories about that, but the reality is that once you impose a mandate, almost everybody says, okay, if the state imposed the mandate, it must really be the right thing to do, and they wind up getting vaccinated. And so my hope is that knowing that this mandate is just around the corner, um, that once we have full approval of the vaccine for ages 12 and up, which probably won't be until um, shortly after the new year, because um, well, for reasons, because you need six months worth of data. And while the trials started before May, when it, the emergency youth authorization went into place, it's gonna take a while for that data to be compiled, um, sent over to the FDA and the CDC for them to consider it and for full authorization to then happen. So I don't expect this mandate to kick in even for the age seven, um, even the age 12 and up, which be grades seven and up. I, I don't expect that to happen until July of next year, meaning it's really not gonna um, affect anybody until next academic year. But the hope is that having that knowledge that this is coming will spur people to start those conversations with their pediatricians, with their county public health officers, and figure out what their pathways are now. Um, and really understand that if they've been putting off this decision because it's big and scary, now is the time to dig in and that there are lots of people out there who are willing to listen to their concerns, who want to hear what they have to say and understand why they've been waiting so that they can help them get comfortable with the idea of protecting their family. There was a lot of anxiety uh, from the get-go as far as uh, full government approval and any sort of emergency authorization for the shot in general. And now we're waiting for it for, you know, five through 11-year-olds. That makes up, of course, a huge bulk of the school population. Do you, do you wish that this process was uh, going by faster so that this mandate could be extended to them? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I have um, a second grader and I have um, a baby who's 18 months old. I cannot wait for these kids to get the vaccine. I cannot wait. And um, so the FDA just announced that they're going to be having one of their meetings in which they will consider authorization for um, ages five and up. But as far as I know, Pfizer hasn't even submitted uh, an application for emergency youth authorization. So that has to happen um, before they can actually grant anything. Somebody has to request it. And then the CDC will follow. So my hope was that we were going to see at least the emergency use authorization, the EUA, for the younger ages by Halloween. But I don't think that's going to happen. And so I'm disappointed at that. For me, from my perspective, the difference between an emergency use and a full authorization really has a lot more to do with public perception and comfort level than it does with the actual safety of the vaccine. Like I said, the real difference is you need an additional six months worth of data before you can even consider a full authorization. And we know from considering vaccines over the past century that the vast, vast majority of any adverse reactions happen within the first two months. Months. So that six months of data is a really good thing to have. It really can reassure people. It can, um, you know, give you a real belt and suspenders approach to safety. But from my perspective as a parent, I know that most of the vaccine adverse reactions are things that would likely happen if you got COVID. So I am, am very committed and, and um, sincere in my belief that um, the vaccine is a far safer way to go. And so as soon as an EUA is oh. available for my kids, I'll be doing it. All right. Leah Rasson, Executive Director, Parent Advocacy Group, Vaccinates California. Thanks. 
Consumers are getting new protections meant to stop surprise medical bills. Nothing worse than getting a procedure at a hospital because you definitely need it, thinking it's only going to cost a certain amount, and then seeing all those zeros on the bill. We talked to Laura Wooster, Associate Executive Director of the American College of Emergency Physicians, asking what's in this plan and if she thinks it's going to work. Really, what the American College of Emergency Physicians and the broader medical community worked closely with Congress for over two years to protect patients from these surprise medical bills. And that led to passage of a new law in December of 2020 called the No Surprises Act. So yesterday's announcement um, provides more details on how this law will go into effect on January 1st. With regard to emergency care, under the law that Congress designed, patients who receive that care from a physician or hospital who's outside their insurance network, as you noted, will only be responsible for what it would have cost them if it had been from an in-network physician or hospital. So we're talking about what copay or deductible they'd owe here, just to be clear. Um, And up until now, many insurance plans, as you guys probably know, have had a much higher deductible, a lot of times even double, for out-of-network care. And that was one of the key reasons that surprise bills could be so high after emergency. So once we were sure that patients would be protected in the legislation, we focused on working with Congress to come up with a bill process, a bill resolution process that's fair to both sides, to the insurance plan and to the physician. Again, leaving patients out of the middle from any of this. They're done. They they paid their copay or deductible. So this type of process is one that we've seen that works really well in a number of states. Providers in those states received fair payments. Patients were protected from surprise bills. And insurance premiums didn't go up, so it didn't raise costs in the system. But yesterday, once we learned how the Biden administration is going to implement this new law that Congress had passed, um, we became really concerned because it really, they seem to have almost entirely disregarded a lot of what Congress intended. Um, And what's happened is that they've stripped out so much of that dispute resolution process, that's what's left, is really a de facto system of federal price setting. And why does that matter? Um, Because of this price setting, insurers will really no longer have any incentive to maintain those robust physician networks that give you the flexibility and choice in a doctor that you might want to see. And these artificially low payment rates will also be a disaster for people, particularly in rural areas. Um, These areas are already struggling to keep hospitals open and fully staffed. Uh, Over 135 rural hospitals have closed in the last decade. And last year, there were a record number of closures, um, 20 alone just in the last year. So I think we've all seen firsthand how strained our emergency care system has been over the last year and a half with COVID. And you think it'd be clear that now is really not the time to take resources away from emergency care. I mean, I'm hearing every day from our members who are overworked, under resources, there's not enough hospital beds, there's not enough staff. But meanwhile, insurers kind of continue to post these record profit gains. So we're really concerned with how the Biden administration has announced that they're going to implement that new law is really going to further tip the scales too far in the direction of insurers. And frankly, I think they've shown that they care more about their bottom line than they do our patients. So we're definitely keeping a close eye on this. So t- tell me more about what has changed since the administration came in, because I understand there's an arbitration process to determine a fair point. But the way you're saying now is it's not going to be as fair because of what's been stripped away. Yeah, so it gets a little complicated, but what they're doing is in that arbitration process, the way Congress intended it was that um, one kind of market, like one kind of data point that the arbiter could consider when deciding what's a fair price um, would be what the median contracted rate would have been for that service. So what would it have cost the insurance plan um, for the physician if the service had been in network? 
Um, and that was just supposed to be one factor among many. And it was only supposed to be weighted just as much as any other information that, let's say, the physician brought to that kind of things about complexity of the case. Um, if it was a really kind of complex procedure, things like that, those are all taken into account. Um, so what the administration announced yesterday is that now that that median in-network amount, the arbiter is supposed to consider that a fair price and any kind of movement away from that, the physician would have to bring a lot, like an overwhelming amount of evidence. And even then, just the way they've designed it, the way we're reading it, it doesn't leave much room to, to go up from that median in-network. And I should note that the reason in-network rates have always been lower than out-of-network is because it's part of a contract negotiated rate. Both parties get benefits from that, right? The insurers have a more robust um, insurance network, which uh, patients like, and so they're more likely to, to sign on to that insurance plan over another company's. And on the provider side, they get kind of uh, less paperwork, they get more um, assured payments, things like that. So they contract for kind of a lower rate than would have been owed to them out of network. So by the way that the administration is implementing this, it, it takes away that whole point of negotiation. And so if insurers can know that at best, they only have to pay that median in-network rate that they would have paid before, even if the service is out of network, why do they need insurance networks anymore, right? Like why bother? Why bother negotiating with any of these, these physician groups, these independent um, companies? Um, they just don't need to anymore because everybody's going to pay the same, whether it's in-network or out of network. And that's where that federal price setting comes in that we're so concerned about. Laura Wooster, Associate Executive Director of the American College of Emergency Physicians, uh, she said at Healthcare complicated. Short break and then businesses, they're getting creative to stay afloat. The pandemic disrupted everything and it's hit businesses hard. A lot of them closed. Others had to make some big changes to stay open. WBBM's Cisco Cotto talks to Courtney Wright, owner of Gemini Builds It and Showcase Acrylics in Illinois, about how her company has navigated the COVID crisis. Well, the basic company, we're a manufacturer of wood and acrylic products, as well as printing. Uh, we're an acrylic fabricator pre-pandemic that worked for museums and industry. And then you took this beginning in 2016. You expanded now into showcase acrylics. Help us to understand that part of the business. Thank you. Uh, well, in 2020, no one was going to buy anything from museums, which were shut down. And I had the good fortune of... Uh, getting involved with Costco and Whole Foods early on in 2020 to provide what's called a sneeze guard. Um, I didn't really know what that word was, but quickly have learned, and that started an entire PPE division for us. So we've been active up until this day, making sneeze guards all kind of custom acrylic for people that want to protect their employees from the, the germs and provide optics that they're doing their part to help things. Talk about what that, that pivot is like, because I, I think that really separates certain entrepreneurs from others. The fact that when there's an unexpected challenge, they're able to say, oh, OK, well, what's the hole here? How can we make this work? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a great question. It wasn't perfect at the beginning. I had marketing material that was, you know, a little bit B-level. Uh, it wasn't perfect until it was perfect. We got things on our website quickly. I think it's speed to market, uh, Cisco, that really differentiated and why we got out of the gate so strong. We got out of the gates, we listened to our customers, and then we kept changing and evolving our designs to meet what our customers needed. Yeah, that seems like you, you, you need to, to sort of have a thick skin in understanding, hey, that feedback from customers or potential customers, you, you, you can't get too invested 
interested in the product being exactly what it is today, you have to be willing to let it evolve. Absolutely, because the bottom line is it doesn't matter if I like or you like whatever it is we're putting out there. If it doesn't work for your customers, it doesn't work. And I just don't uh, mind when people give me feedback. It's a gift. I learned a long time ago that that's the message. So I sort of look for what are the things they're saying and then react to that. And our company is nimble enough to be able to really take advantage of those lessons. So are you doing anything differently for people who are at home, whether they're working from home or, or just spending more time at home? Is, is that part of your business at all growing? You know, no, we work for businesses. So really when people are coming back, I mean, last month, great example, the younger kids who are in school now and aren't eligible to be vaccinated, their teachers wanted those kids at those long rectangular tables to be separated. So we made some dividers that put 10 children at a table and, you know, they're spitting all over the plastic and that's fine because at least they're not spitting all over each other. And it's a little level. I don't know. I'm not a germ, you know, police, but I do know that it's optics for the parents. It's great for the teachers and it does help. And I'm thinking not only in the classroom, probably in the lunchroom as well, because you you have a bunch of students in there trying to eat at the same time. You can't do that with a mask on. That's right. And every single lunchroom has a different uh, sequence of tables. And our differentiator is that we can do it for, you know, rectangular tables or round tables or square tables. And they all exist and everyone is different in every school. And we're able to kind of put the right solution in place to make it work for their particular need. I'll offer one piece of advice to up and coming entrepreneurs, people who are just trying to make their idea work, uh, what you've learned over the years? I'd say uh, you've got to grind. There is just nothing and no substitute for continuing to work and listen and be with customers. Don't sit in your office. Be face-to-face with customers or Zoom-to-Zoom and um, take what they tell you and good customers lead you to business. Thanks so much. Really good to talk with you and hear a bit of your story. That's Courtney Wright, owner of Gemini Builds It and Showcase Acrylics. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, latest high-level official to test positive for COVID. Court says he has no symptoms, has been fully vaccinated since January. Had a routine test ahead of Friday's ceremonial investiture for Justice Amy Coney Barrett. The court says Kavanaugh's wife and daughters are also fully vaccinated. They tested negative. The new term begins Monday. Justices going back to the courtroom to hear arguments after an 18-month absence. Because of the pandemic, they had been doing things via telephone. You can find this Odyssey original on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.